Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Tuesday, June 9th, and this is your FT News Briefing. The U.S. stock market has climbed up more than 40% in about three months. But emerging markets and the U.S. are still struggling with the effects of the coronavirus pandemic. And Democrats in the U.S. Congress have responded to protests against police brutality with a police reform bill. And it may be hard to believe, but it was just about six weeks ago that oil prices turned negative. Now big producers are seeing some promising signs as lockdowns ease. But as the FT's Anjali Raval will explain, the industry is still advancing with cautious optimism. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. The U.S. stock market has dug itself out of quite a hole. Yesterday, the S&P 500 closed up a little more than a percent on the day, and with it, U.S. equities made up for all their losses this year, in large thanks to the support of the Federal Reserve. It's pretty astounding, considering that U.S. stocks have climbed more than 40% from a mid-March low. But if you think that means the U.S. economy and the global economy are up and running again, I've got news for you. The stock market is, of course, different from the real economy, and these two things have had very different trajectories throughout the pandemic. Yesterday, the National Bureau of Economic Research said February was when the coronavirus pandemic officially ended the longest economic expansion in U.S. history before the country started to fall into a recession. And the World Bank released a forecast saying that emerging and developing economies will shrink. It will be the first time in at least six decades. It means that as many as 100 million people in the developing world will be tipped into extreme poverty. The World Bank defines that as someone earning an income of about $1.90 a day. The World Bank and the IMF have both launched a series of rescue programs to help countries grapple with the pandemic, but some economists are arguing that the measures may not be enough to address the scale of the crisis. We won't be defunding our police. We won't be dismantling our police. We won't be disbanding our police. We won't be ending our police force. That was U.S. President Donald Trump yesterday. He met with U.S. law enforcement officials at the White House. And here he's touching on ideas that have been brought up by protesters and government officials alike. Defunding and dismantling municipal police. His comments came on the same day that Democrats from both the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate introduced a police reform bill. It's called the Justice and Policing Act of 2020. The FT's Washington correspondent, Lauren Fedor, explains what's inside the bill. So the bill sets out some pretty sweeping reforms for police conduct in the U.S. A couple of examples are that it bans police chokeholds. It creates a national registry that would track police misconduct across the country. It would also lower some of the barriers for prosecutors to punish police for misconduct. And notably, it would also ban certain no-knock warrants. These have been discussed extensively in the last couple of months. There's a a really notable case with a woman named Breonna Taylor. She was a 26-year-old EMT in Kentucky, and she was shot dead in March after officers forced their way into her apartment with one of these no-knock warrants. Right. And while a lot of the protests have focused on the death of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor and the no-knock warrant are, are definitely part of this movement, too. So, Lauren, how are Republicans reacting to the bill? 
the Democrats say that they're confident that they're going to be able to get bipartisan support for these proposals, if only because we've seen such widespread protest across the U.S. in not only big cities, but also, you know, smaller suburbs and, and smaller towns. But that said, the Republicans have, have pretty much swiftly rejected these proposals across the board, whether it's Mitch McConnell in the Senate, Kevin McCarthy in the House, the president himself, uh, his reelection campaign. They've all basically seized on this rallying cry by some of the activists to defund and abolish the police and accused the congressional Democrats of trying to do just that. And we should know that Mr. Trump's Democratic challenger in the November presidential election, Joe Biden, his camp says that he's not in favor of defunding the police, but he does have his own plan for police reform, more money for body-worn cameras, and diversifying police departments. And it, it kind of touches on this point, Lauren, that, you know, protesters, many of them are asking for very different things. Yes, an end to police brutality is the main thing that people are rallying around, but there's not really like one specific recommendation on how to do that, right? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. There's a huge range of demands out there, proposals, you know, and this is something I think we see not just with police reform, but more broadly with with this protest movement is that it's really decentralized. So there isn't one specific set of demands. But that said, we've seen in places, for example, like Minneapolis, where George Floyd died, the local council has said that they have the votes to disband and defund the police force there, you know, and, and that effectively means moving away from the current model and trying to find a, a new way of running that city. But we've also seen a lot of proposals that wouldn't get rid of police forces, but would just cut back on the amount of public spending that is, is dedicated out of city budgets towards policing. And it's also really important to remember here that the bill that was introduced on Monday is federal legislation, but there's only so much that the federal government can do in this case. Ultimately, these police forces are funded and governed by local authorities. And over the weekend, OPEC and Russia agreed to extend their production cuts of nearly 10 million barrels of oil a day until the end of July. But then on Monday, Saudi Aramco said oil demand was thriving, and it's planning to raise its prices. The FT's Anjali Raval explains the reasoning behind the production cut extension and the state of the industry. Saudi Arabia in particular, but all of these producers, they've seen a nascent recovery in oil prices, and they want to try and maintain that. They don't want to see another huge collapse in oil. So they realized they need to prolong these record levels of cuts of near 10 million barrels a day for one more month. There was some chatter in the days and weeks leading up to this meeting. They could try and extend the cuts for up to three months. Now, Russia has been against that because they were worried that you know, essentially giving prices so much of a boost may end up just propelling more U.S. shale production to come on and other rival production from countries outside of the so-called OPEC plus group. And so they're very wary about that. So by extending for one month, they're giving themselves a bit of room for maneuver. They also are going to monitor the market every month or so, and they will make decisions accordingly. They can see that demand has picked up in some parts of Asia in particular, as some of the government lockdowns have eased. But they're also not too sure how demand will play out in the medium and longer term. And Angela, as I mentioned earlier, on Monday, we heard from Saudi Aramco about how it's going to lift its oil prices. How is that the case? Yes. I mean, on Monday, Saudi Arabia's energy minister 
said that the state energy company's decision to raise prices, export prices for its crude across the board, across all regions, and particularly to Asia, was indicative that demand is thriving. And these are sort of early indications that actually there is a big rebound. Governments are easing travel bans and other measures to curtail the spread of the virus. And so we are seeing this bounce back. But they are also concerned sort of more longer term because they don't know how long this will last yet. Everyone's playing this game of not knowing really how the supply situation plays out, i.e. US production coming back or not and production from other regions. There's also this question over demand. And there is a question over what global stockpiles of oil look like when prices were super low and demand completely collapsed by as much as a third. Storage tanks around the world were filling up to the brim. And now, even as demand is rising, those storage tanks have to be depleted as well. And so you don't want to be releasing too much oil on the market at the same time as there's already all this oil out there in in storage tanks and in stockpiles. But at the same time, there is this recognition that the situation in the market is is beginning to improve. And Angelia, I want want to shift gears a little bit to BP. Yesterday, its new chief executive, Bernard Looney, someone who you actually spoke to earlier this year, said that the company was cutting 10,000 jobs. Um, What does that say about the state of, you know, the company, but also the state of things in the oil industry? So BP is trying to alleviate this shorter term financial crunch, but also it's looking ahead to the future. Shorter term, they realize that they could be in an oil price scenario that is much lower than what they initially thought. And there's also a second point with Bernard Looney and his strategy for BP is that he's trying to completely overhaul the company structurally in order to prepare it for an energy transition towards cleaner fuels. Now, it's still very uncertain what that means for BP in particular. The primary goal of companies like BP, like World Dutch Shell and the other big majors is to ensure their financial resilience right now. And this is why they're cutting jobs. They are also trying to cut their capital spending because they know they need to be the most efficient companies they can possibly be. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.